Well, come rain or shine or sinkhole, whatever it might be, we're going to have church, and I love that. Uh, and one of the things I love about it is church is not a building. Um, the church meets in a building um, sometimes, like last week we didn't. Um, church is a community. It's a gathering of God's people. It's a, it's a community that's in relationship with one another because first we're in relationship with God. And so it's just exciting to me to be able to see uh, just you all come together in the way that you have here. And one of the traditions of the church that I just love, um, it, it's actually something that I experienced after coming to Summit because although I grew up in the church, the church that I grew up in, we didn't go through the weeks of Advent leading up to it. And so I actually learned about that when uh, coming to Summit in terms of an experiential thing. And all that Advent means is it's just Jesus' arrival here on earth. But a good portion of the church has taken these four weeks leading up to Christmas to kind of get our hearts ready, to help us to slow down in the season that we're in, and to be able to focus our hearts and affection on the Lord. And for me, this has just been so good. It's been good for my soul. Uh, to be able to be in that practice each uh, year that we've been here at Summit, which is now going on 12 years, I think, for my family. And, and the reason I like this is it's the opportunity to take a fresh look at the familiar story as the chaos of Christmas unfolds all around us. Because this is not just a fable made up by our society. This is the truest, most sure thing in our world. The Lord Jesus Christ came to this earth as a recorded act of our human history. He came to Bethlehem, born of a virgin Mary, was in a manger, was wrapped in swaddling cloths. He lived on this planet. We can go to the places where he walked and he talked. And the Bible describes him as Emmanuel, God with us. It's good for our soul to be able to take this time to reflect on the season, to reflect on the coming of our Savior. We've been doing that um, in this series, as OJ mentioned, by studying Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And as our communicators, Zach and Kaylee and Jim, have all done such a great job helping us to understand the context of what was going on in Isaiah's day. It was 700 years before the coming of Christ. And unfortunately, like many seasons in the uh, history of the nation of Israel, uh, the nation of Israel had gone wayward in their heart and their relationship with God, which is never a good thing. And especially during this season of their history, because one of the most feared and cruel and oppressive nations that has existed throughout the centuries, Assyria, had amassed a near 200,000-person army against them, and they were sitting right on their border. Wow. Now, we can't imagine what that's like here in the United States. I mean, we've had Pearl Harbor, we've had 9-11, and, and those things, but, but those were attacks. We've never had a more powerful nation amassed against us, sitting on our border, ready to come in and take over. Well, this week, unfortunately, we, we see a poignant reminder of exactly what was going on um, almost 3,000 years ago with Aleppo. And the images coming out of there, I don't know if you've seen any of this, they're just horrific. Moms and dads just pleading. There's no way out. There's no way out for survival. And their children and their families are facing certain doom. I can't imagine what it would feel like. I can't imagine just what would be going on in my heart in that situation. 
And we see a picture of that because that's exactly what was happening in the nation of Israel um, during this time of Isaiah. Interestingly enough, God's response to them, his message to them, is he promises them a baby. This is God's answer to them in this crisis that they're in. It's actually words of great comfort in the midst of the catastrophe. And so let's read Isaiah 9, 6. He says, for us, a child is born to us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Today we're looking at Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace. And it's worthy to look at the Greek, or the Greek, the Hebrew words, Sar Shalom, which is translated Prince of Peace, because it's so rich in meaning that loses a little bit of the translation in our culture and in our language. In our culture, uh, Prince, which is the Hebrew word Sar, um, probably brings to mind images of Disney or fairy tales, right? We don't have princes in our society, but what's, what's a prince, right? It's something our kids watch on TV and we dress them up for Halloween. But the Prince of Peace, the word Sar means commander, chief, ruler, the one with authority to come and to implement the will of the king. The one with authority, the commander, the ruler, the prince. Such a rich word. And shalom is the word for peace. And again, we, we, we lose so much in this translation. It's a word that's actually hard to describe because the word shalom is actually meaning life the way it was intended to be when God thought you up. It's life in perfect relationship with God under his provision and blessing. It's a life to the full. The idea is contentment or wholeness or fullness. One translation is the fat life. <laughs> life so rich, so well-fed, if you will, spiritually and in every way, that it's just overflowing. Life the way it was intended to be. So when there's a blessing in Jewish culture, which still goes on to this day, and they say, shalom. They're saying more than have a good day. They're saying peace to you, and may you have life the way God intended it when he thought you up in perfect relationship with him. Isn't that beautiful? And so God's solution to the world problem that Israel was facing in that day is I'm sending you a baby, one with authority, sar shalom, to bring shalom to my kingdom, to bring shalom to my creation, to bring shalom to this world. He has the authority to do that. What a comforting and a thrilling idea. Now, obviously, when you're in that situation, you're like, okay, but how, Lord? And that's what they missed, and it's easy for us to miss as well. Obviously, we haven't quite attained shalom in our world yet, have we? Interesting, Aleppo is in the exact same geographic location some 3,000 years later almost than it was in Isaiah's day when the Assyrian army was amassed against them. The exact same geography. Obviously, we haven't arrived at peace on earth. When you look at our last century, it's the most bloodiest century recorded in human history. It's not getting better. We haven't been able to figure it out. Why? Why is peace so elusive in our world? 
And not just the peace of nations getting along with one another. We can also talk about peace in a relational sense. Peace between husbands and wives and children's peace that goes on around the coffee pot at work. Peace in our neighborhoods, peace amongst races. Why is it so hard to establish peace relationally? And then there's a third type of peace. Peace for our soul, peace for our inner world. This would be a life free of anxiety and worry, a life of satisfaction, a life of wholeness and contentment. And no matter what storms we're facing, as Zach said in the first week, we're able to experience that that peace in the midst of it. And we know from our own experience and looking around us or just talk to any counselor, peace at the soul level is elusive at best as well. Why? Why is peace so hard? Well, I want to talk to you this morning about something that's not easy to talk about. And so first, let me assure you that when I prepared this message, it's something that I gave to myself first. It's something I wanted to take in for me personally first. But I want to talk to you this morning about the problem of sin for a moment, if you'll let me go there. You see, sin is the reason why peace is so elusive. Sin is the reason why peace is so elusive in our world, in our relationships, and in our inner world. It's at the center of every war. It's at the center of every broken relationship. It's the reason why the Bible says we have separation between us and God. Our problem is sin. Now, talking about sin is really hard in the specific sense. It's not so hard in the general sense, and I think you would agree with me. Um, Generally, the Bible says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we, I think, for the most part, acknowledge that you, you may not realize that there's more people who acknowledge sin than believe in the reality of God. If someone doesn't except the reality of God, we, they are called atheists. And if you're an atheist today and you're here, I am so glad you're here. Thank you for coming. We want Summit to be a safe place for you to come and hear the message of Christ. And we are so glad that you're here. If you're agnostic and you're not quite sure what you think about God, is he or is he not? We're just so glad you're here. Thank you. Thank you for coming this morning. But I can almost guarantee you something that you acknowledge the reality of sin. Let me tell you how I know that. When you drove up this morning, um, let me just ask you this question. Where, Where are your car keys right now? Are they in your ignition with the windows rolled down and the doors unlocked? Or are they in your pocket? You see, if they're in your pocket or in your purse, they're there for a good reason. It's because you acknowledge sin. You acknowledge its reality. If you locked your door on the way out this morning to come to the Y, you did that for a good reason. You acknowledge the reality of sin. For me, I, I like to prepare. I've got to get out of the office when I'm doing kind of my deep thinking and preparation work. And so when I'm preparing for a message like this, I'm often at Starbucks or over at McDonald's over a cup of coffee. And invariably, I'll be there so long that the effects of the cup of coffee kick in. I know this is way too much information, forgive me. Um, And so I gotta get up and go to the bathroom, all right? So I'm there and I've got my wallet out, my iPhone's usually out, my keys are spread out and and that sort of thing. And so I get that thought, all right, do do I gather it all up and take it with me? 
because I'm just coming right back, or do I leave it here? Almost, I'd say every time, once in a while I feel bold, but every time I just kind of gather it up so it's not worth the risk, and I take it with me, and then I come back. Why? Well, it's because generally I, I, I'm acknowledging what we all acknowledge. There, there's a problem of sin. You see, there's people that are trying to get what they don't deserve, and they'll take it. So, generally speaking, we all acknowledge it. We live in a world with sin. It gets a whole lot harder when we start talking about sin in a specific sense, when we start looking inside of us. And I can tell this because we move from the language of acknowledgement to the language of denial or justification or rationalization. Our language switches. It it sounds something like this. Yeah, I I may have some problems, but (laughs) at least I'm not like, but you see, nope, I'm not that. I'm not that bad. A friend of mine, uh, Dr. Joel Hunter over at Northland, he tells a story uh, of a guy who's at his church um, who actually would sell inside the prisons, inside the jails. And so he would frequently go into the jail and uh, he would actually have an opportunity to strike up relationship with some of the inmates. Uh, and he tells the story of one particular inmate that he had become a friend. And oftentimes they would talk about, hey, what's going on on the outside? And, and uh, Joel's friend, the salesman, Uh, was particularly burdened this day, and he said, yeah, I just heard some disturbing news. Um, He said, news just reported, a guy went into a home, not only did he rob the contents of the home, but he took the lives of all the people in the home. And the person who his friend is, the inmate, was in for robbery. And he just hung his head, and he just, oh. Guys like that give us robbers a bad name. (laughs) He goes, I never robbed from, from... from rich or poor people. I I didn't want to hurt them. Uh, I only robbed from rich people, and I didn't really want to hurt them either because I knew rich people had insurance, right? So I wasn't really robbing from the rich people. I was robbing from the insurance company. We know they can afford it, and they're all a bunch of crooks anyway. (laughs) You see, he's doing what we all do. We rationalize our sin. Ah, my sin's not that bad. Ah, it's really not my fault. Another thing we do is we slip into blame shifting. Um, I had some years of counseling, and my counselor used to say, Jeff, you know how we spell blame, right? Uh, like, first time I heard it, I was like, uh, blame, B-L-A-M-E. And she says, yeah, no, it's be lame. Whenever you're blaming, you're being lame. I said, oh, okay. That was a good lesson, never forgot it. All right, we think we have a wife problem. We think we have a kid problem. We think we have a boss problem. We think we have a job problem. But even if all that stuff got fixed, you see, the root runs really deep. Chances are you might fix the external, but the internal is still what's broken. We need to go to a hard place to go. It's hard to acknowledge sin. I mean real sin in our lives. It's hard to go there. But I want you to go there this morning. First, let me explain what it is. It's not just a mistake. So many of the world religions, in fact, all other world religions, basically treat sin like it's just a mistake. That through some right amount of good works and religious activities, we can somehow fix what we've done wrong. We can somehow fix us. We can somehow change the inner core of who we are. And we can get the scale kind of turning the other direction. You see, you can cure a mistake. You can correct a mistake. But sin is something that can't be cured or fixed. It's deep within us. 
The Bible says it's part of our nature and it's something we cannot eradicate by ourselves from our heart. Sin is what's broken in all of our relationship and it starts with our most important relationship, our relationship with God. As we read in the scriptures this morning from Romans, the Bible says that we were not at peace with God before we were Christians. In fact, so much so that God considered us his enemies. Wow. Why? You see, God hates every hurtful word. God hates every act of injustice and brutality. God hates and always has infidelity and lies and robbery and murder and looks of pride in every act of self-sufficiency. It runs contrary to the very nature of our God. He hates every thought and act that is contrary to his good and his perfect will. Okay, about now... If you were brought here this morning, you might be elbowing the person next to you and going, hey, wait a minute. I thought we were here to hear a Christmas message this morning. (laughs) We'll get there. But we had to go here first. Because to truly understand Jesus, to truly understand Christmas, to truly understand Prince of Peace, our Sar Shalom, to truly fall in love with God, We had to go there first. Once we're able to acknowledge our own sin, we can begin to understand the cross. You don't see your need for the cross. You don't understand the cross until you see your need for the cross. John Stott, a theologian, said, we do not understand the cross as something done for us until we understand the cross as something done by us. We're the reason for the cross. We're the reason why he freely went to the cross and shed his blood and died in our place because of the harsh reality of sin. You see, we have a tendency to want to put ourselves at the center, to put ourselves on the throne, and to have our world revolve around us and not God. But we need to look to Jesus, the Prince of Peace. So let's look together at a passage that tells the story of him dying on the cross, the last place that the Jews would have ever anticipated their Messiah being. They never thought that the Messiah, they didn't believe the Messiah would come, but they never anticipated that he would die, being crucified by the very people he created. Let's read again Luke 23. It says, the soldiers came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said. Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him and said, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Do you ever wonder why this scene ever occurred in human history? Why did God allow Jesus to die on the cross? Why did Jesus choose to die on the cross? 
Why didn't he do just what the Jews expected him to do? In a cosmic display of just utter power, show up in the universe and say, I'm God, you're not, follow me. <laughs> kind of what seems like a good plan. I mean, he could have put on the cosmic display. The Bible says that he had 10,000 angels at his disposal, but he could have called at any minute. Now, one could have done the job. I don't know if you realize, but later in Isaiah, one angel comes and wipes out an army of 187,000 soldiers. One angel, one night. Can you imagine what 10,000 could do? <laughs> right? that's, that's what he had at his disposal. Right? Why didn't he do that? You see, he didn't want to force subjugation, forced rule. He wanted to deal a decisive blow to the thing that brought enmity between God and man. He wanted to bring shalom to the heart of man and the heart of God first. And when you think about it, how brilliant is our God? To bring shalom to the earth, he first brought it to the human heart. And the only way that he could do that was for him to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. You see, as Zach has been saying, Jesus came to live the life that we were supposed to live. And he chose to die the death that we all deserved. You see, our God is holy. And in his holiness, he can't just look at sin and wink an eye at sin and kind of turn away. To do that would mean God is no longer just. And if God is not just, he cannot be holy. And therefore, by definition, he can't be God. But the good news is he's not only holy, he's loving in a way that we can't even begin to comprehend, especially when we see his holiness. He's so loving that he said, I'll take their place. I'll take their just penalty of the wrath of God stored up throughout eternity for the sins of man and take it all into his person because he loves you, that you might have a way to know God. In his infinite wisdom, God saw Shalom, the one with authority to establish peace went to the cross so that we might have it. Notice what the second thief says in verse 41. He says, we're being punished justly. We're getting what our deeds deserve. But he's done nothing wrong. No arrogant taunting. He was able to go to the place we all need to go this morning. He was able to acknowledge his own sin. No excuses, no rationalizations, no justification just an honest recognition of his own brokenness and a realization that he needed in desperation for God to do something for him that he could never do for himself. And so he cried out in faith. He cried out in humility. Remember me. The result that very day, he got shalom, peace with God in his kingdom. Do you see how brilliant God is? Do you see the wisdom here? God's still committed to bringing peace to this earth. That's his plan. And he's going to do it. He's going to reign on planet earth and bring shalom to all the nations. But to do it, he did it in the most unexpected way, the most presumptuous way uh, from man's perspective. He did the unexpected. He did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, and he took our place on a cross. From the cradle, the wood of that cradle, foreshadows the wood of the cross that he would hang on one day on our behalf. The Bible has a fancy word for what Jesus did for us there. It's called justification. It means that he made us right with God. You see, now God no longer looks at us as his enemies. No, there's peace there. 
we're right with him, so much so that when he looks at you, he sees the righteousness of his very own son. He's well pleased with you as his son and daughter, and he loves you with an everlasting, unbroken, perfect love because of Christ. Now as his children, we can grow. We can grow in our relationship with God so that peace more and more characterizes our marriages, our families. It's not automatic, it's not easy, it's gonna take work, but you can grow. You've got the power of God now within you and you can become the type of person that experiences shalom in your relationship as a greater and greater part of your life. And as we learn to become the people of God, we can get swept up into the thing God is doing and join him as he brings shalom to all the nations. What a thing we're celebrating here this morning. Our God, so wise, so holy, so loving. So I have a blessing I'd like to give you this morning. May you come to know Jesus. May you experience the forgiveness of his sins, walking closely with him, that you might have shalom with God this holiday season. At this moment, I'd like the band to come up. Um, we're gonna, um, I'm gonna slide a little left so folks can get up here. Um, we're gonna move to communion in our service, and I just think it's just a perfect, perfect time as we're coming to the end of our study of Isaiah 9-6. God's solution to our problem was to send Jesus so that we might have peace with God. And so the communion uh, that we do here at Summit, I'll describe how we do that in just a minute, but this is something the church has been doing for centuries. It's something Jesus asked all of us as his followers to do and to do frequently. Why? Because it's a reminder of what he did for us. The bread represents the broken body of Christ that he freely gave for us. And the, uh, the wine represents the blood of Christ shed for us, as Hebrews says, without which there can be no forgiveness. But it's through his broken body and his shed blood that we can have peace with God now and that we can walk with him so that we can experience shalom and bring shalom to his world. The way we do that here at Summit is through the intinction method. Um, that means that we're gonna, as the band's going to play, you're going to be able to come up to one of the stations and there's going to be bread and uh, juice or wine clearly marked. And as you pick up a piece of the bread and dip it into either the wine or the juice, one of us will say, the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. And you'll partake of that in remembrance of what God has done for all of us because it's so true. And so as we come, as we worship, let's remember our God sent to us the Prince of Peace that we might have peace with God. Come forward as you're ready as the band leads us in worship.